Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. recent Market Dominance Guys episode, Vanity Vanity, Thy Name is Value Metrics. Chris and Corey continue here with part two of their conversation with Mike Jensel, co-founder and CEO of Visualize ROI. Mike and Chris share their insights into value metrics and how to construct and present statements about value propositions and returns on investment. These market dominance experts explain that it's all dependent upon the job title of the customer rep being addressed, as well as where in the sales cycle you are with that company. Is risk mitigation the most appropriate metric? Is it perhaps better to talk about productivity gains? Or would a statement regarding cost savings be more enticing as a promised ROI? And as Corey asks, whose job is it to craft the appropriate statement for the value prop or ROI? Mike cautions listeners about the importance of being careful in the representation of value when talking to a prospect or customer, because it's necessary that the stated ROI be credible. He then gives examples of formulas for determining what you should charge a customer by relating it to the amount that company will gain by using your product or service. As with all Market Dominance Guys podcasts, you'll find this sales-related topic both enlightening and helpful in your quest to dominate your market. Welcome to a part two edition of the Market Dominance Guys with Corey Frank and the Sage of Sales, Chris Beal. I am not on camera today to save precious bandwidth because I would not want to have any iota of bytes or exabytes or terabytes wasted on looking at me when we have Mike and Chris, these two experts here, where I'm going to try to get out of the way as much as possible. And so last time, I think in part one of our exercise with Mike Genstel here from Visualize ROI, we were talking a little bit about a lot of the vanity metrics that big, dumb sales farm animals like me use to try to justify or dazzle their board with how we're doing in sales. And certainly was an important episode you should go back to listen to in part one. But in part two, I thought when we kick it off today, gentlemen, was talking a little bit about how that spark happens between sales reps and actually the prospect when we are in the language, we are right in the heat of battle, so to speak, of trying to communicate ROI during the sales process. Oftentimes we'll talk about features and benefits and things of that nature, of course, but how do we in the visualize ROI world, they talk about justifiably earning, Mike, the available budget and this value-based messaging that you talk about and talked about so eloquently in part one, how do you, how do you communicate that? How do you go beyond just a traditional budget type of conversation to paint a picture of how or why the ROI occurs. So I think that would be a good place to start as we enter into the next episode of the Market Dominance Guys here. Good to have you again, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Corey. We tend to help organizations who are trying to engage buyers around value. Think about four buckets of value, hard cost savings, revenue acceleration, productivity gains, and risk mitigation. 
And every buyer that you engage with, if they're truly interested in your service or solution, they will have to create a business case internally that will touch on at least one of those points. And often it's several. And the favorite one for buyers and sellers is hard cost savings, meaning you're spending X with this certain vendor today, Mm -hmm. and you're spending Y with another vendor. If you shift that spend to us, you'll actually be able to save cost. And that's dollars back in your pocket. And the CFO will appreciate that argument as well, uh, the advocate that you're selling to. You go down the line, most B2B organizations are selling something that gets productivity gains. And productivity gains are a little bit tricky to quantify the value of because you get a lot of hours back for people avoiding certain activities. But what are those hours worth? And it's hard to quantify that sometimes depending on what those people do. For salespeople, if you get hours back from routine tasks, well, theoretically, that's more time spent selling which allows them to actually achieve their quotas more effectively. So you could say those productivity gains equate to incremental revenue booked, and that's going to appeal to every VP of sales as well as CFO and CEO in that buyer decision-making unit. The next one is risk mitigation. And so you've got any, every, every organization is making a certain amount of mistakes, both in their internal accounting, internal processes, as well as the, the, the product and services they offer to their customers. Everybody's making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Some of those mistakes are easily measured. A good example of it is an assembly line. People typically know the error rate on their assembly line. If I, if I produce a thousand widgets, typically a half percent have something wrong with them. If I could reduce that, that would be, uh, be a good thing. So to your point though, Corey, on visualization, there's two sides of visualization here. The first is the images themselves that the marketers are already doing a good job creating. Most B2B organizations that we engage with have marketing teams that are very effective at creating sales materials in the form of PowerPoint presentations or Google Slides or other imagery that has very powerful images that describe value proposition, reduce carbon emissions and a picture of a cloud you know, reduce this, improve that. And those images are very powerful. What we do is we equip sales reps to overlay numbers on top of those powerful images that the sales reps are already using in their discussions. So that's part A, overlaying numbers and data on top of good images and making that data dynamic. And then part B is charts and graphs. And depending on who you're selling to, some some people appreciate images with data and others appreciate bar charts or pie charts that say, you were spending X, that, that's coming down to Y. And so the best, the best visuals that we equip our, our customers with are a combination of beautiful images with numbers, as well as bar charts and pie charts and line charts showing cost savings and revenue growth over time. So that's kind of in a nutshell how we think about it. So when I look at hard cost savings or risk mitigation or productivity gains or any of the other, is there one that you found, Chris, maybe even from your world too, in the connect and sell world, that when I'm speaking the language of ROI, that is more alluring or sexy or powerful than another, for instance, is hard cost savings may appeal to this person, this persona, productivity may, do you just find, or are they all really kind of different heads of the same coin? I can speak to this from long experience, not just at Connect and Sell, but at other companies. I've found consistently selling productivity gains that free up people's time. That sounds great until somebody thinks it through a little bit. And then the question is, well, are they going to fire people in order to also save money? Probably not. And what do they think is going to happen with that time? I remember the general counsel of General Electric once took me aside and said, when we were selling some productivity kind of oriented stuff, 
And he said, Chris, if it doesn't save a dollar that the CFO can see as a dollar, don't talk about it. We call that water cooler time. <laughs> and we value it at exactly zero. So that was fortune one at that point and very sophisticated viewpoint. Somehow I managed to listen to him well enough to change the message around from this will save your engineers two and a half hours per part that they find to this will save you $50,000 of vendor certification each time they find a part. Mm. And 11 divisions of General Electric bought our product and uh, we became important in the electronic cataloging space for engineering. So getting that right, and getting over where that hard dollar cost savings was something that Mark Mastriani, the, the uh, chief counsel of all of General Electric, could stand behind as he spoke with the CFO. That was really important. Now, later in our relationship, he pounded his fist on the table and said, Chris, you are destroying the General Electric company. We had a different conversation, but that was the conversation we had to get in. Another one was a later one. So the other thing is you know, people respond differently at different points in the sales cycle to different things. So very early in the sales cycle, there's an attraction to upside that is not followed through later. And there is a distress, an emotional distress with risk that when risk is emphasized early, it's a wonderful thing. That is, if you say we completely eliminate, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the fundamental risk of X, whatever X is, and, and then you say something that's emotional, and the frustration with Y, allowing you to do Z, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get a meeting, that combination works pretty well, because completely eliminating fundamental risk, this is surprising. After all, it wouldn't still be there and be fundamental if that were easy. So that's a bold claim. And wiping out an emotional stressor which is always frustration, by the way, in business. Always, always, always frustration. So everybody's frustrated all the time in business because they're trying to do really well. You know, Deming taught us this, right? People have pride of workmanship and they feel like they never quite have the time, the resources or the support to do their job as well as they hold themselves accountable for. And then they're trying to go somewhere and that's the upside. But if it's the upside of like, and it makes you more dollars, that's probably not as appealing as it will let you accomplish the thing that's been sitting on your plate for three years. You've been unable to move toward because you're so busy doing other crap. Yeah. And I think, Chris, you you talked about the persona and the different stages in the sales cycle. And I think the way you articulated it was, was correct, where the CFO, particularly in conservative companies like GE, are going to need that hard dollar savings. But to get to that CFO, you needed to get through some middle management layer and that middle management layer may or may not care about the hard cost savings because it doesn't affect their job. Right. And so as you're appealing to that person, you need to say, what is the job you're trying to do? You're trying to get more widgets through the assembly line more quickly, more effectively, with fewer errors at, at, at reasonable prices. Mm-hmm. And so you might talk about higher throughput and a lower error rate. Those metrics, that person might get his bonus based on those two things, throughput and error rate. So yes, the, 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 the whiz-bang thing that you're selling, today you're here, going forward you're, you're here on your error rate reduction, et cetera. But then when you get to the CFO, you flip, you flip the thing and, you're, and you compute the actual hard cost savings per your metrics, it's vendor certification. So to kind of tie it together, you kind of build a matrix of persona on one axis and then the actual KPIs on the other. 
And your business value story needs to be able to show the right metric to the right persona at the right time through the sales process. And it's pretty elegant and sophisticated and you kind of need software to do that, which is where we come in. But that's, that's kind of the holy grail because you have to, con- you have to consider the entire decision-making unit and what each person cares about and putting the right numbers in front of the right folks is, is tricky. But I would agree with Chris's point on hard cost savings is the, is the number one thing. We're it's just- certainly number one at the end, right? At the end, but, correct. But it, I, I love this. This is so important because often in sales, we get locked in to what we consider to be a value proposition. I remember walking into Sean McLaren's office when I first joined Connect and Sell. I'd been with the company for eh, maybe a day. And he was officing out of some company where he had made an investment because Sean's too smart to rent his own office. So he was getting some some sort of trade out office space. And I walked into his office and, and I just wanted to sit with the guy, right? He's a genius. And why not? I could learn a thing or two. Plus, Actually, I'd been under the impression for years that he was dead. So watching that dead guy work is so cool. So I go and sit down and he's got a whiteboard and it's got two letters on it. This whole whiteboard in big letters. They're like three feet high. P-I. And I said, what's that? He says, personal impact. If you don't know what the personal impact of what you're offering is to the person you're speaking with right now, you will never make consistent progress through the sales process. And so that's what this is about is ROI is kind of abstract. PI is like PI, personal impact is right now, but they're related to each other, but they're related in a somewhat subtle way. The software that Mike provides, Mike's company provides, lets you actually make a PI statement, personal impact statement that makes mm-hmm. sense out of a, what would otherwise be an ROI generalization. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Contrary to, uh, uh, to rumors, he's not, he's not dead. Right. Um, not very, not very at all. Every time I talk to him, he's very lively. Uh, that, that's good. I love that. So, so to the point, Chris and Mike, who creates this as it come from, right. We talked, I think a few episodes ago, Chris, about sales and marketing alignment, right. I think we've had 50 or 60 episodes and sales and marketing alignment always seems to creep in there once in a while. But um, from your perspective on these, these value statements, these, um, these ROI, these PI statements, do they come from the messaging, from the sales side, best practices? Should they come from marketing? And this is what they use to empower all of their messaging. How does something like that spark or create? Because this is a philosophy, but now I can point my finger and say, great, who's going to create it? Marketing has all the content. Hey, sales guys, uh, you know, we, uh, we don't do that kind of thing, or do we? Um, yeah. Where does it originate from? Yeah, it ends up being a bit of a hybrid responsibility, Corey, is what we're seeing. If you think about the evolution of a, of a new company, imagine a company being started or founded by a founder. That founder is going to go out and acquire his first customers and his first investors, and he's going to create a pitch or she's going to create a pitch, which is visionary. It's going to describe problem areas that customers tend to have and how those problems can be solved with this revolutionary new thing. And it'll have imagery. It'll talk about these problem sizes and then benefits. And it may have a couple of testimonials of people that have tried it and had success, et cetera. So on day one, you've got a visionary founder, and then that person brings on some marketing folks that are really building out the story and the message. And so you've got this nice, compelling, visionary message, which is largely qualitative, some nice images and problem statements, and then a couple of testimonials. 
over time then as you as you hire and, and scale a sales organization, you're getting past those early visionary customers to the early majority, kind of coming back to crossing the chasm and then and then the late majority. And the crossing the chasm was right. We should still talk about it more these days, I believe. And those buyers aren't as effective at getting budget for a very visionary concept. They need proof points. They need to see the, these ROI stories. And then the, you know, the, the CFO will need to be basically agree with those. So what we're seeing is the people that are building the, that quantified message inside of organizations to supplement the visionary value props that were designed during the, during the founding days and then, and then in those uh, you know, several quarters after that tend to come either from product management. These folks tend to be highly analytical and quantitative. So sometimes they'll build the quantification. Sometimes it's product marketing. The product marketing folks tend to think about segments of customers and the value of segments per customers. And then there's also some of our customers an emerging function, which is called the value analyst or the business value analyst. And we're seeing more and more companies that have these folks on staff. It used to be companies like SAP and Oracle had small armies of business value analysts. And now alumni of those organizations are heads of value at hundreds and nearly thousands of companies. And these people have a day job of building and refining value quantification for typically they get started on the biggest deals that the company is selling into. And then over time, they're scaling themselves by building self-service tools, sometimes through our platform to make the make it accessible for the average rep and the average deal. But at scale, what we're seeing is, is a hybrid approach where the marketers are still generating beautiful slides with beautiful images. And as, as the company releases new products with different different variants of the value proposition, the value prop will there'll be different approaches of quantifying and describing the value prop then overlaid with actual hard calculations from either, again, the product manager, the product marketer, or the business value analyst. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. So that's, that's what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and as we go through the sales process, it's interesting how these capabilities and the artifacts that come out of them are best used. And sales job is actually to do two things. One is an assessment. Should we, does it make sense for us to move to the next step or not to do more together? Should the relationship evolve or should the relationship stop evolving? That's the number one job of a salesperson. And it, and when they're they're testing that with somebody, these kinds of tools are incredibly valuable because if you're the salesperson and you reach into your bag of, of I'll call them ROI tools or value tools, and you pull out one that you think makes a lot of sense, you populate it with the relevant data that is that applies to the situation for this particular person that you're speaking with and their situation, and they yawn, well, you just learned something. And what you might have learned is, huh, we really don't have anything here for them. Or you might have learned, huh, I didn't get it. I need to go back into the tools and find the other one that they care about. I have a classic example. I mean, this is true of almost every VP of sales. Corey, you, you've run sales organizations, so you've heard me say this to you when you are my customer. Corey, you got 102 people. 
I think 23 would be a better number. What do you think? Right? <laughs> You've heard that from me, right? And what did you say? Chris, ain't no mm, way, all, right? All of the, the limited self-worth I have as a, as a man, Chris, is all coalesced into the number of salespeople that I have under my payroll. I think I said something along that lines, maybe not that eloquent, but that's basically what I meant. Yeah, I think NFW <laughs> came to mind. Therefore, this, hey, here's this efficiency that will let you save money through reduced headcount. I could show it to you all day long and it wasn't going to get anywhere. So I either had to find something else or we had to disengage, you know, one or the other. Right? So that's sort of thing number one. Thing number two is, but if we go to the next step, new people get involved, new things happen expectations are set and maybe expectations need to be met. So one thing that's different between marketing and sales involved in all this is marketing paints a picture that can be arbitrarily large in value along the four dimensions that Mike mentioned. Sales must constrain that picture to being just large enough to take the next step and no larger. And it's really important for a successful sales cycle that you don't overstate value early regardless of who you're talking to. So one of the jobs of sales is kind of odd. It's to not to attenuate in an artificial way, but to be careful in their representation of value, whether it's risk reduction, whether it's cost savings, whatever, so that it's just enough to move to the next step and not so much that they get, and this is a really good phrase for those of you who've ever done it physically, out over their skis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way we address that is we always coach sales reps to say, the first thing you need to find out before you do anything else is roughly what is the revenue of your customer? Because if you've got a 10 million, if you've got a customer you're selling into that's doing $20 million in revenue, you can't give them $10 million in value next year, unless, unless you're going to create a rocket ship, like, and they're going to, you're going to put the whole team in a rocket ship and send them to the moon and back. And that's worth $10 million in value to them. You'd be lucky for a $20 million company if you add $1 million in value, you know, which is 5%. It would be phenomenal to add another one to two million dollars on top of that. Now, if you sell something like Connect and Sell, which dramatically improves their sales results, well, maybe you'd be getting on top of the 20 million an extra one, two, three million dollars in value. But you should not say 10 million because it's not going to be credible. Now you might get those results. That's 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 fine. We find that sometimes these models don't take, don't have these rails in them, as Chris said. You can't overstate, but you also can't understate. So for that same 20 million dollars in company to tell them they're going to get $20,000 in value. The CFO is probably not going to care at that point. And your solution better be better cost no more than $5,000 if you're going to get $20,000 in value, maybe hopefully a little less than that. But but the point would be, hey, try to get that $20 million revenue company a couple hundred thousand dollars in value to a million bucks and charge them 20,000 bucks for that. That's that's a good exchange of value. I'm going to give you 20k, you're going to get 100 to 200 to 400 K back. And that's worth a couple percent on top of your $20 million in revenue. That's a story that you should be trying to tell. And, and that's, that's what we train against starting with what's your price, what's the value and what does that relate to their overall top line and, and profit associated with that. And there's variants of that, but that's kind of how to think about it. Wow. Mike, do you actually train this stuff? Cause I don't see anybody being trained like this. I mean, it's like, talk about one size fits all. Every rep wants to say, you're going to get the sun, the moon, the stars, three galaxies, and a unicorn. Right. And that's just the greatest thing in the world. And what you're saying is you actually train folks. I was like, we train reps too, 
we train them in a five sentence way of having an, an okay conversation, right? First conversation. And we do it because our software quote unquote works, but it doesn't deliver as much value unless the conversation is good. So you're saying your software quote unquote works, but it doesn't do as much good unless they have a conversation that makes sense for that kind of customer. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It, every B2B rep is in the business of getting meetings and ultimately quoting prices and trying to get contracts signed. And, and when we do the training, we say, well, what's, what's your average deal size? And I'll say, my average deal size is $50,000. Great. So then I'll ask the question to the room, okay, what do you think your customer needs to get in terms of value for that $50,000 to make sense? And they'll say, I don't know, $100,000. Well, maybe. What would be better? $500,000? Yeah, 500 to a million bucks, 10X to 20X is a good story to tell. It's credible. It's reasonable. It's a good story to take to the CFO. So say, okay, let's agree it's a million dollars in value for your $50,000 investment. How are you going to convince the customer there's a million dollars in value? Do you believe it? How would you prove it? And let's say you've got two minutes in an elevator going back in the old days when he rode elevators with the CEO of the company. How would you tell that CEO you're going to get him a million dollars in value? You better know to be, you'd be able to be able to talk to that pretty quickly as a function of the things that he does, what is what he's selling, how much he, revenue he's making. And you go there. And when we frame it that way, Chris, as part of the training, it actually resonates because they're quoting prices and they've just, they've never really stopped to think about, huh, what should the value be? And it's simple math. Once you kind of get them thinking that way, it's easier to get the adoption and change the culture around around value selling. Yeah, I think we are wired. I think our our good friend Oren Clef from Pitch Anything, Chris, where we talk, Oren's a big advocate of leveraging pessimism in sales in your sales process, right? Because I think Chris, as you're alluding to, I mean, what type of professionals in the world are the most optimistic? You got entrepreneurs. Right, especially when they're trying to present to an investor their product and you got salespeople. I mean, their job by definition is to to seed optimism, right? They're programmed to promote this vision of the future where your biggest problems are solved, as you had said, and you deliver the moon and the sun, as you're saying. So so given the nature, though, what you're saying, Mike and Chris, I mean, it's counterintuitive because given the nature of our profession, salespeople like me, we're not programmed to be pessimistic. We're programmed to be optimistic and push you in that direction too. I think this optimism that bubbles up from our emotional core, I think it, it, it creates, it sows those seeds of doubt, doesn't it, Mike, where it actually creates stress for the buyer, you could say, because it's unbelievable, my, my goals. And Chris, you talk a lot about this in the messaging about after the breakthrough, we do X that does Y and Z, and some of those are emotional pieces of the, the messaging and, and some of them are, are logical. But so that, that pessimism does wreak, you need that pessimism, I think what you're saying, to get a little bit more credibility. So they, you shouldn't fight that as a salesperson. It sounds like giving them that autonomy to, to question, yeah, that's reasonable. The goal of the value, the ROI that you're saying, I can buy into that. And that gives me a little bit more autonomy and trust to move the conversation along. Yeah, well, today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So, when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. 
it's time to get uncommon with uncommonpro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.